today we are having a special bonus edition to the podcast, and I'm actually going to be playing a recording of an interview that I did with Southbrook Christian Church outside of Dayton, Ohio. It's my hope that you would take time to listen to the interview and really just put yourself in a posture of curiosity as you listen. For a little context, Southbrook reached out to me after the murder of George Floyd and expressed uh, interest in learning more about cultural humility and leaning into the discomfort and challenging conversations around racism, specifically as it applies to the Christian church. So Southbrook is a a fairly large church, maybe around 6,000 members, and they have about 90% of their congregants are white. And so the leadership team reached out to me to just have a conversation about race, racism in America and how the church has and can play a part in the restoration and racial equity. So uh, without further ado, here is the interview. Southbrook, this is a really special moment. You're going to hear a voice that you need to hear, that I need to hear, a voice that our culture needs to hear. And with us today is LaShonda Sugg. She is... um, a trauma specialist in in emotional and relational trauma at Labors of Love Counseling and Consulting. And um, just talking to her briefly, she has pools of wisdom that we need to hear in an era where many of us are going, okay, I understand, I don't understand. That's the posture many of us have taken is is uh, an acknowledgement I need to learn, I need to grow. I love how many of you have, have, have taken from our resource list and some of the books that we've read that you're reading, etc. But LaShonda, it is so good to have you with us I this weekend. It. it is so good. I, I just, just listening to you talk, uh, you know, I think you'd said that WCPO had done an interview Correct. And that makes me feel good because your voice needs to be heard. Your wisdom needs to be heard. So tell Southbrook in general what it is you do. And then we'll talk the specifics of why you're with us this weekend. Um, I love to hear you talk, by the way. So uh, tell them what you do. It just could not be more relevant than 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 right now. Yeah, thank you. So I appreciate the invitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have been called for my voice to use my voice and use my platform. And I'm always um, honored, humbled, and very excited when people invite me into their spaces Mm -hmm. to have very important conversations. Um, So I'm a trauma specialist, and what that looks like is twofold. So on one hand, I have my clinical practice. I, my jam, what I love to do is work with multi-generational families. I'm talking teenage or Teenage children to adult children with the parents. If you can sprinkle in a sprinkle in a grandchild or a grandparent, like an auntie and uncle, right? Mm-hmm. I like to bring all those people together because there has always been some kind of wounding, some kind of developmental or relational trauma that's taken place in the family, and we deal with it the best way we know how. Some families that's sweeping under the rug, some families that talk around it, um, 
point to the most relevant thing that has happened and put decades worth of anger into that one thing instead of dealing with the underlying issues. So I bring families together to work through the trauma that they've had. Mm -hmm. I work with couples and individuals as well, but it's all to the same end of helping people understand that the experiences we've had in our lives create what I call our template. Our template tells us where things go. This is good, this is bad, this goes here, that's how you do it, that's how you don't do it, this is how you respond, right? Our template is formed of our worldviews, our belief systems, and our behaviors. And so we learn all of that, the vast majority of that, between utero and seven years old. Mm -hmm. Everything else is just piling stuff on top of it. And so helping people say to that understand. Again. That's, that's, can you say that again? That, that, that's... Direct download, I can try. Yeah. <laughs> no, this, this idea that... By the time we're seven years old, our templates are pretty much set. Mm. Right, wrong, good, bad, do it this way, don't do it that way. Um, and really, to survive the family system we're in. This is what I need to do to be seen in my family. This is what I need to do to feel loved by my family. This is what I need to do to avoid punishment in my family. And everything we learn after that just piles on top of this very laid foundation. So what I help people do is explore their templates. Because we grow up into adulthood and we start living, we continue to live out that template in our new relationships, on our job, in school. Mm -hmm. And when it's not working, we're not figuring out why. We, we don't understand it. So something I frequently say is many of us are walking around living out our trauma, calling it personality. I don't know. That's just how I am. That's just how I do things. That's, that's, really that's what, what we do. And, and when someone says that's just how I am, my response is often perhaps, but it's more than likely how you adapt it. Mm -hmm. So once we start to adapt to our family systems and our social structures, we learn how to stay alive, stay safe and avoid pain. Those are probably, those are the three fundamental um, responsibilities of our brain. Mm -hmm. And it aims to do those three things first. Mm -hmm. Other, once those are accomplished, we can move on to kind of higher functioning things. Mm -hmm. um, when couples come to me, very frequently what they'll say is, you know, we just, we have a hard time communicating. And I'll say, no, you don't. You have a hard time talking. You communicate just fine. When you slammed that door, that was communication. <laughs> when you didn't respond to that text, it was communication, yeah. right? And when they say, we just keep bumping heads. And I said, mm, I think you're bumping templates. So let's yeah. not look at what's happening right now. Let's look at how did you get to be where you are? So that's my clinical work, working yeah. with individuals all the way to full families. Um, and then on the other side of my work, I do a lot of training. Um, I work with corporations, government, schools, nonprofits to help them understand trauma, uh, what it is, how it impacts the brain and body, and then help them develop the skills to become trauma responsive. So trauma-informed is this buzzword that's been going around pretty heavily for about, the, for about a decade. Um, we need to be trauma-informed. But trauma-informed simply tells you trauma exists. It doesn't necessarily help you build the skills to interact with people in an effective way. Mm. And the foundation of trauma responsiveness is shifting from the uninformed question, which is, what's wrong with you, to the trauma-informed question, which is, it's not what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you. But with trauma responsiveness, we then add the component of, and what did you do to survive? Mm -hmm. Everything we see coming out of someone in most ways are survival skills. Mm -hmm. When we can frame it from a survival perspective, 
then we're able to lean in with empathy and compassion instead of judgment and shame. Mm -hmm. And we know the church is heavy on shame. Yeah. Right. So responsiveness to trauma means not only do we interact differently, but we view how people are responding to oh, life. I love that. And now how relevant that is right now. So let's take that example of how you would then say that we get this six-year-old in the first grade classroom who something triggered him and he's acting out. That's actually a, a, a trauma has been touched upon there from your perspective to put him in the corners, not really going to process that in a healthy way. So what, what's really going on there? Because we're going to land this plane on what's happening in our culture right now with traumatic reactions and, and things like that. Uh, what, what's the story? What's the probable narrative behind Yeah, little that? Johnny. Johnny yeah, is just my Johnny. default name. Sorry yeah. if one of the hundreds of thousands of people who will see this, right? His name is Johnny. Um, but what's happening with little Johnny is something he has perceived danger. And that is something through his five senses. Right. Something he's seen, something he's smelled, something he's tasted, something he's heard, something he's felt on his skin could have triggered Mm -hmm. something inside of him. But in addition to our five senses, we have what's been dubbed our sixth sense and it's called neuroception. There is a part of our brain that is constantly and consistently surveilling our environment, looking for threat and danger. It's not enough for a threat to be absent. Right. There is no lion, tiger or bear where we Mm -hmm. are right now. But just because there is not a threat present doesn't mean I feel safe. Mm -hmm. How do I feel safe? What did I see? I saw smiling faces when I came in. I was offered a beverage, Mm -hmm. right? There are no sounds that are jarring or alarming to me. It smells pleasant. So my brain is constantly surveilling the atmosphere. That's everyone. 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 Am I safe? And the safety cues we need are built in our template, What feels safe to one person does not to another. I say this all the time. I I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, proper, in the city. Inner cities don't bother me. Give me two cornfields and I'm turning around. Okay? I do not feel safe in those environments. Whereas someone else feels very peaceful and serene, but gets very afraid in an urban area. So this is built into our template. So whatever's going on with little Johnny, something in the environment triggered a sense of threat. Mm -hmm. And when his sense of uh, safety was compromised, he went into survival mode. And there are only five options. He's either going to flock try to seek safety by being close to someone. He's going to flee, try to gain safety by gaining distance from the threat. He's going to fight, try to overcome the threat. He'll freeze. If he's freezing, he's just waiting for the opportunity to flee or fight, or he'll faint or submit. Mm -hmm. And what that means is he will either dissociate, his body is present, but his mind is somewhere else, or he will begin to acquiesce. Yes, yes, no, No, Mm -hmm. you're not going to do that again, Mm -hmm. are you? No, no. And then you say, he's just not listening. He lied. He didn't lie. Mm. He responded out of survival. And so those are the five options that little Johnny and every single other mammal on the planet has Mm. to do one of those five things. And it manifests differently. So when we are looking at how people are responding to life right now, the frame we need to be taking is where did they fall? And knowing that this is a survival strategy, 
all of our survival strategies happen, un, happen underneath our consciousness. Uh, we're a very cognitive, heady society. We want to assign intent to everything that we see when the vast majority of what's happening is an automatic move into survival that then we wrap a story around. We'll even convince ourselves that we did it on purpose, but we didn't. It is how we've been created to survive. And thankfully, I mean, the species has lasted this long yeah. because of these mechanisms. Right, right. But without an understanding of that, we find ourselves making up stories to fit the narrative of our template when we have very little information about how other people's templates are formed. One of the things we're seeing is, is, is I mean, the, you take a church like South Park and the overwhelming majority of people are like, I want to learn because I want to love better. You do have a few outliers who are saying, I don't need to learn how to treat people. I already know that, you know, I'm not a racist. I don't need to learn. And so this is obviously for those of us who say, I want to keep growing. I want to I wanna be a person who embodies in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. We're one. We're one. doesn't mean there aren't designations of culture, but that we are one in that. And so walk us through then how this trauma narrative now affects our current context, especially how across black and white we need to how we need to understand, tr- try to relate to each other in a way that just says, whoa, that was loving. That wasn't just neutral. Mm-hmm. That was healing. Mm-hmm. So speak into that, Lashandra, of now how then shall we live with what you know and what you see. Like you watch the news and boom, I know what's going on there. Right. I know really what's behind that. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about that. Firstly, I don't watch the news, but good for you. <laughs> that's just good make for that you. clear. Um, yeah. Good for you. But um, no, that's good. Before I answer that, I do want to have just a small appeal to that second group of people you talked about. The ones mm-hmm. who say, you know, I don't need to learn how to do that. Um, my invitation, the offering I have for that group of people is simply Sit and ask yourself why. What would you be losing by exploring what people are saying to you as a reality? And that's it. Just stop there. Right? If the person who is saying that is truly a believer, then sit with that question and allow the Holy Spirit to guide you. Um, yeah, that's it. For this other group of people, thank you. you're welcome. For this other group of people who are saying, I want to learn, um, there, is, there is so much to learn, but we can start at this common place, and it's called history. Understanding history. So as a believer, our faith, the core, the foundation of our faith is rooted in the principle that something that happened long ago matters today. So for people who are struggling with understanding how racism and the traumatic stress of racism is manifesting in our country right now and find themselves, even if they don't articulate it out loud or post it on social media, thinking to themselves, well, you know what, if they would just, Mm. if you have thought or made the statement, if they would just pause 
and say, how does history play into this? And if you find yourself defensive of that and you're thinking, listen, that was 400 years ago, okay? We can't keep making excuses. How many opportunities do they need, right? Like that was long ago. They've had numerous opportunities. If that, if that is kind of the, the foundation of your heart's thought, then I want you to think about how much further than 400 years you have to go to think about one act that has formed the foundation of your whole belief system. Mm. Had Jesus not died and three days later rose, your faith means nothing. And you've built your whole life around your faith. That one act, he rose all those years ago, still has real-time implications today. Then you can't tell me that the enslavement, the brutal rape, murder, devastation, using the bodies of black people to build an economy that they would systemically be barred from benefiting from, it's not having an impact on the descendants of those people today. Mm. And so history, understanding history. I've talked to a lot of people over the last couple of weeks, specifically around racism. And a couple of things that I have heard is I, I get that I don't get it. I want to do this. You know, this is, it's hard. This is tough. I, I'm afraid. And what I say is, yes, this is shaking the very foundation of who you thought you were. I have found that one of the biggest driving forces universally as I have come to see it for white people in America is not wanting to be seen as a bad person. And so there is a very rooted investment that people have made to maintain, I am a good person. Mm -hmm. And because that's the rooted, uh, the foundation for so much of what people do and don't do, there is a lot of effort, energy, and resources that goes into maintaining, I am a good person. But at this point, we're not talking individual conversations. We're talking systems, right? And what gets frustrating for me and, and many black people is when we're talking systemic, when we're having systemic conversations and people keep bringing it back to, well, I never, well, I didn't. And we're not talking about you. We're talking about the system in which you're very much a part of, in which you very much benefit from. Mm -hmm. And what I've been asking people to do is when you feel like you want to distance yourself from the conversation, insert yourself even more. You know, there was this um, this powerful uh, song, hymn. I don't even, yeah, it's a song, but uh, we were there. Have you yeah. heard the song? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were yeah. there, yeah. right? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The point of that is don't separate yourself, right? Mm-hmm. We, we conceptually say, man, those nails that went in, my sin plays a part in that. That is an insertion of yourself. Knowing that all those years ago, you weren't physically standing there. But you've yet and still you inserted yourself 
insert yourself, mm-hmm. right? It's all good when it's theoretical. Mm-hmm. And when we can raise our hands and lift to the sky in a gathering of thousands of people, but every single day you have an opportunity to insert yourself. So when I have to say things like Brianna Taylor, who was murdered in her home, in her bed, on a no-knock warrant from the police, looking for someone who was already in custody, I have to insert myself and say, that could have been my cousin. That could have been my sister. That could have been me. When I say George Floyd could have been my uncle, could have been my husband, Right. When we say these things, there is an insertion of it could be any of us. But what's very difficult for white people is they say, I couldn't have been that officer. Oh, surely you could have. You could have because his actions had so much less to do with. He's just a bad person. See, there we back to that investment. That couldn't have been me because I am a good person. And that was just a bad cop. Mm -hmm. But that bad cop existed in a system that allowed him to be a bad cop, right? And to play those things out. So how do you insert yourself into the narrative? Maybe a person says, I absolutely could not have been that officer. Could you have been someone standing by watching? Could you have been one of the other officers? Two of them new to the job. You ever been new to a job? You're afraid. You could easily insert you, yourself. In you that. look yeah. up to the yeah. person who you're, yeah. they're training you. You don't get to have an opinion. We are socialized and conditioned to know what it means to be a rookie. Mm-hmm. Right? That word carries with it. Shut up. Learn. Listen. Don't overstep. Mm-hmm. That's a system. Mm-hmm. Rookie cops exist in a system that allows them to stand and watch a man be murdered and not feel empowered to stop it system. And so what's happening around us is the result of systemic oppression. What do you think about, because I mentioned last weekend, one of the the paradoxical statements that's been made that I've chewed on a lot is Brene Brown's statement, the system is not broken. The system is working just as it's designed to do. And the dissonance we feel is when the system is actually interrupted. Oh, and I, you know, for me, that was because you always hear the system's broken. It needs to change. No, she, her state. I thought that was. So well, your thought on that as a trauma mm-hmm. counselor mm-hmm. Uh, is so pertinent because there are many of us white people who feel dissonant right now with our lives because a system that I have benefited from is interrupted right now, whatever level. The, the radio frequency has some, some jibs in it right, right now, right? And, and it's just, I, I, I want to lead our church in this because uh, like I, I grew up in a biracial family. My dad, then my nephews and nieces, and LaShonda, I don't get it. And it breaks my heart when people have contacted us and said, hey, I don't need to learn about this. I, and I get it. I don't, need, I don't need to understand how to treat back black people. I'm not a racist. I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just, it's just so way beyond that. I love that analogy of, of not analogy, the, the historical reference point. Let's go now to 
your four eyes. And especially now as we connect those to this weekend's, you know, you're the beginning of this series on one another, one another, one another, one another, one another. And how do we, you know, now we, how, how we greet one another is critical in affecting institutions. Uh, it can't just be interpersonal. It has to affect institutions too. It has to create a different system. So talk to Southbrook now about your four eyes because mm-hmm. they are so relevant mm-hmm. to yes. this dialogue and this cultural context. Mm-hmm. So while I can't um, direct you to the exact source, I will say I, there are the four eyes. They're not mm-hmm. my specific okay, okay, four sure, eyes. Sure, sure, <laughs> but sure. the four eyes of oppression, um, ideological, institutional, interpersonal, and internalized. Okay. okay. Walk through so, those now. Ideological oppression is is how it's all set up. It's the system that I'm talking about. Ideological oppression uh, instituted in this country was first the establishment of racial categories to begin with. Yeah. Okay. Um, race is a social construct. Not a biological. No, it is not biologically rooted. At all, yeah. right? So it is made up. It, it is made is, up to support the system. Oh, right? the, it the, was the foundation of the system. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so tobacco, huge money maker, slaves of every color, slaves came for or indentured servants came from Europe. They came from Asia. They came from everywhere, and as more indentured servants came slightly moving into, hey, this would work better if we actually owned the people. Slavery might get us more money than indentured servitude. Well, the more people who are there, there's the elite 5% who's actually benefiting, and then there's everyone else. They might revolt. They're starting to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. They're starting to, what if they turn on us? Mm -hmm. All right, we have to figure out a system that's going to keep this in check. How, how are we even telling the difference between who's indentured and who's enslaved? Like, it's just, it's too much. It was just too much. So let's create a color line. And we're going to create this color line. And we're going to stop it at a certain point. And anyone who's beyond this side on the color line, this is, you know, they're going to be enslaved. And so we're going to treat them. But it's still theoretical. It's still theoretical. You still got to get people on board. Every, you know, how do you make sure that everyone knows the rules we're playing by? You write them down and you make them law. And so when you make them law, and to be fair, whole different conversation on coming to this country and stealing the land of Native Americans, killing mm-hmm. them, pushing them in a corner, and then carving white men faces to look over them. Mm-hmm. Totally different conversation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So you create this color line and that's still ideolo- that's still ideological. But then you have to create the systems that are going to carry out your ideology. Hence, government. They're the ones who make the law. Then you need an education system to make sure that people know the law. Then you have to have a, an enforcement system that's going to enforce the law. right? And the church is one of those institutions. Yeah. We take the ideology and we push it out. And so the ideology that there is a them and there is an us and that the us's are superior to that. Some words that just trigger people's insides without actually thinking about what they mean. One of them is white supremacy. 
you just know I am not a white supremacist. What does it mean? It, it, it means that this country was founded on the ideology that white people are supreme yeah. over others. Colonization flowed from that. White supremacy, mm -hmm. right? You bring in colonization, through which became these little pockets through which to continue to funnel through the ideology. Yeah. So you have ideology as we are better, some people are better, right? The thing about it is there were white slaves. There were. Very few people know that. There were yeah. white slaves. Yeah. However, part of the system worked because if you can take that group, white slaves, and tell them that they're better than the other group, black slaves, the then yeah. you have a group that will keep those people in check. The white slaves keep the black slaves in check. They get a little more benefit. Still a slave. Yeah. Still a slave. And so all of this goes through. The third eye interpersonal. That's where we get stuck. That's the, I've never called anyone the N word. I, I, I don't, I don't see color. I treat people based on who they are though. That's the, that's the reality that people are trying to make real for themselves. And that's interpersonal. What we're seeing carried out black people being murdered by, you know, the, the, the use of overuse of force by law enforcement, interpersonal, how people interact with one another. If we only think about interpersonal, then this whole ideology and the whole institutional, the systems part of it doesn't get addressed. Mm -hmm. And people spend a lot of energy convincing people, I'm a good person, I don't do that. Mm -hmm. I would never do that. And there is a whole system at play. Yeah. And then the fourth I is internalized. All of us, in the same system, drinking the same water, breathing the same air, getting the same education, have to figure out how we have internalized racism. And that internalization is going to look different, not just from black people and white people, but based on our templates. Mm -hmm. Where you grew up matters. The um, access to diversity matters. Mm -hmm. And this is generationally passed down. So someone living in a suburb of Cincinnati or Dayton, Ohio, really can have the belief that their beliefs are so far from someone living in the South, but not so much. Mm. Epigenetics is the study of gene and gene expression and how it's passed from generation to generation. And so literally the genes in our bodies carry from one generation to the next and to the next. Mm. And so the way my foremothers and fathers had to survive slavery, part of that lives literally within my body. And part of how white people had to maintain their supremacy in whatever way has passed down generation after generation. So we have to stop looking at the years that we've been alive and trying to gather all the data as to why we're not a bad person. And we have to understand that this lives in the blood of this country. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are important. Mm -hmm. And as much as I want people to be intentional about interpersonal racism and interpersonal oppression, we have to also understand that the institutions that are perpetuating the ideologies are just as important to, to look at. And that is why the system is not broken. The system was created to 
maintain white supremacy and to make sure that all of the riches and all of the benefits of its system benefit those that it was intended to benefit. And I mean, this makes sense. If you had a dog and a cat, and we have neither, so if this doesn't fly, then I'll try something else. However, dogs and cats are different. They both have four legs. They have fur. I'm allergic to one and not the other. Which I don't, one? Cats. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, there's kind of, however, there's dog food and there's cat food. And when you buy your dog food, you put it in a place where you want the dog to go eat the food. And if you have a dog bed, you, you start making sure that what you designated for the dog, the dog gets. And what you designate for the cat, the cat gets. And if you got a rabbit, with the rabbit. So you start to do that, but you start to build a system that makes sure that who you intended things for, right. they get it. We do this all the time. You got multiple children, right? Who gets what? How do we create a system to make sure what's designated for one goes to one? And if there's a little crossover, no big deal, but not too much. Mm -hmm. And if we can, let's make it go back. The system was created this way. And so we can't say, let's fix it. It's not broken. We have to dismantle. We have to understand that it wasn't meant for us. In a minute, we're going to get real. Okay, we're going to get real here in a minute. But before we do that, what does it take for someone who is listening today and didn't know they were blind to some of these realities you've spoken into to I was blind and now I see mm-hmm. what born it's a born again experience like I I I am now I used to see in in monochrome now I see in HD color that I how did I miss this all my life mm-hmm. What have you seen? Just real quick on that, because it is a part of their narrative that they started early on. No one is born with prejudice, discrimination, and to build in a system of racism. But we learned that, right? What does it take for Southbrook, Sam, and Sally to go, today shifted me? Mm-hmm. Um, an acknowledgement of the past, but a focus on the present and future. Okay. So there is a lot of, a lot of people I've talked to, they're spending so much effort, time and resources in the shame of, I didn't know that they're exhausted when it, when it comes Mm. time to do something. Right. So let's repent of that. Right. But then let's move forward. It, It is the scales have fallen off. And so you do see things differently, but it's also important to understand that you will fall back to those things that have been a part of your template for as long as your life has gone on. You've used the word a couple of times and I sometimes assume people know what it means. But when we talk about dissonance, like I want to help people understand why fundamentally that's so hard. It's why I sit, I truly believe I've been given this gift um, that plays out in a lot of ways, but to be able to sit and hold space for multiple different kinds of people, Mm -hmm. because I look at the white person who says, I don't need to learn that. And my first reaction is not disdain or anger. It's, I get it. Dissonance hurts. It hurts. Dissonance essentially is our brain holding two completely different and opposite ideas, Mm -hmm. beliefs, and worldviews. Painful. Mm -hmm. It is painful. Which one is right? 
And, and the investment of, even if this is right, my whole life has been built around, yeah, it is so painful. So what happens is outside of our conscious awareness, our brain, top three priorities are again, our brain, keep us alive, keep us safe, help us avoid pain. If dissonance is painful, then an automatic response will kick in to make this less painful. So what that looks like is rationalizing away explaining away, creating a narrative that helps fit whichever of those stories you're going to live with. It is, if both can't be true because it's too painful, well, one of them got to be true and we're going to put everything we got into making that one true. And so it is sitting with the pain. How can you, how can you move forward? Sit with the pain. I don't get an option to not sit with the pain of racism. I don't get to raise children yeah. without thinking about considering and navigating a world that wasn't built for me and my family. I don't get to not wrestle with that. If you get to say, this was cool, tomorrow I'll start, that is the definition of white privilege. It just yeah. simply means you have the option not yeah, to yeah, wrestle yeah, with yeah. it. Yeah. And so sit with the pain. And when I say sit with the pain, I don't mean up here. We're so heady. I mean in your body. I mean literally as you hear my voice, as you're watching this, take a moment, take a deep breath in through your nose, long exhale out your mouth, and feel where you feel that in your body. Mm -hmm. It will be painful. Yeah. Sit with that. Acknowledge that. Journal that. Draw that. Move that, move your body, but know that this is a body, right? It lives in our body. And ultimately, when scripture tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? There are systems and powers that are taking place and we can look at that and it feels so big. But when we don't listen to our bodies and take active steps, we become complicit Mm -hmm. with that. Racism is a spirit. Mm -hmm. And scripture also tells us that when an unclean spirit leaves a man, it roams. It roams. And when it finds nowhere to go, it'll come back Mm -hmm. with seven more. More powerful, more strong. So if you're hearing this and you're thinking, you know, I don't want to do this and I'm going to make some changes. If you don't want that spirit to come back even stronger and set up dwelling again, you got to replace it with something that's going to take up that space. How has racism benefited you? Mm -hmm. Micro level, macro level. Until you can replace a belief, uh, a worldview, before you can change a behavior, how many people have tried to lose weight? It goes for a while, it's not sustained. Mm -hmm. Tried smoking, it's just not. Tried to stop smoking, tried to stop. All of these things, it's because we start with the behavior. Don't start with your behavior. I want you to go inside and start with the need. How has this belief I've held about black people specifically met a need for me? How has my avoidance of even thinking about it met a need? Maybe the need is to just not feel feel uncomfortable. We identify the need. We build a muscle to meet that need. We can let go of some of these Mm -hmm. things, right? So lean into this process, Mm -hmm. right? Don't Distance yourself from it. Insert yourself. Those are the beginning steps. I have nothing against people who want to go to demonstrations and rallies and marches, but that can't be the only thing you're doing. 
and it has to start. We always say it starts at home, but before it starts at home, it starts in your temple. And so what's happening in your body? What can I control six feet around me? What can I control within my whole home? And as that begins to morph and change, we move that into the world around us. Yeah. It's the same very thing we did when Christ came into our lives. Yeah. That's really well done. And You know, I, the thing I'm trying to lead our church in is get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Get comfortable with that. Intentionally go into conversations. Mm -hmm. Well, let's start there and then listen. And your message is resonating with that, the intentionality of embracing that pain. I, I want to get real now because uh, here at our house, Lashonda's here with James, her husband. And I want to tell you, Southbrook, um, I'm about to give Lashonda the experience of her life because Lashonda Sugg is a Michigan graduate. Yes, that's right. And... I'm going to pray over my sister right now, and I'm going to take her and take James down to my Buckeye basement where she can be baptized in <laughs> scarlet and gray and where she can be immersed in 11 warriors and she can be reminded of recent history. <laughs> so we're going to pray. <laughs> Lord, I thank you for my sister Lashonda. I thank you that uh, you brought her into our church's life because this woman has a message to speak that I need to hear, that we need to hear. Hers is a voice, and I pray it's not a voice crying in a wilderness, but it has a ready audience with Southbrook this weekend, mainly to say I'm going to sit and live out of that pain and embrace and insert myself in that so that in that I can grow. Because you can have comfort or you can have growth, but you can't have both in this issue too. I pray your blessing on Lashonda and James and their kids, that you'll sustain them and prosper them in their ministry and their life together, their marriage. I pray that you continue to use her voice as you have used it this weekend with Southbrook we thank you and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you.